on maynard.com.au. Down under in Australia, men of the civilian army behind the fighting army are getting into the right dress to defend their country. They're ready again to fight for liberty. I do love a good read and I do love a good history read. With me I've got someone that would be very much at home in a dark library somewhere looking at documents. And when she was looking at documents she found something pretty interesting. Dr Sue Rosen. Hi, Maynard. You've just got a book out called Scorched Earth. You found a plan for something pretty amazing at a very dark time in our history. Could you summarise what you found and what you were doing when you found it? I was doing research in the state records reading room in Western Sydney for national parks. There's a lot of unindexed material out at state records. There was this forestry correspondence files 1939 to 1945 and I thought, oh, I'll have a look wartime activities of the Forestry Commission. One of those files contained the top secret at the time, scorched earth policy for what we were going to do should the Japanese invade in 1942. Think back, I mean, you could ask your parents or your grandparents about that time. Some opinions are pretty divided, but everybody was pretty sure that the Japanese were going to be on our doorstep and near our house within a few months. In this document, they were talking about maybe having... A, one of the phrases was, we may only have a day, a week, a month. But they really thought it was imminent. And the plans are very, very detailed as to what we were to do. The whole idea was to deny everything to the enemy by destroying everything that we own or could use. Well, it was meant to be a selective destruction because there wouldn't be much time because everyone was to stay in place until the last minute. You had to decide early on what was to be destroyed. But anything that wouldn't be of use was not to be destroyed. You didn't waste your time, you didn't waste your jelly night, your matches even. Things like actually your house and furniture was not to be destroyed. But light bulbs, refrigerators, (laughs) radios, water tanks, electricity, all had to be disabled to the extent that it was not repairable by them. Food stocks as well. This is just giving up in a certain way. No, 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 I don't think it is. No, not at all, because you were required, they use the term simple, silent, selective and swift. You were to stay in place. They felt that there were two areas that were going to be attacked, the rural coast and then the urban Newcastle to Port Kembla urban industrial conglomeration. And they thought the Japanese would come in by the coast and outflank Sydney in order to get hold of those resources. The intent was that you stayed in place until you were given the order by the military to go and you were set certain routes to retreat on. Every citizen had been allocated to what they called a citizen's collaboration column. It was a corps. So if you had experience in medicine or pharmacy, you'd be in the medical corps. And the plan is incredibly detailed. It has a list of occupations covering just about every occupation you might expect to be in the 40s, even unemployed and Boy Scouts. And Boy, Boy Scouts were to make sure the bicycles were taken care of. Every Everybody who was given a role. And the Boy Scouts also had to practice throwing grenades. It's got in bold type, practice grenades. So yeah. don't give the Boy Scouts real ones yet. With this withdrawal, as soon as you got inland, say up to Tenterfield or Ural or up that way, you were to go to your core and then you were to go back down and start helping. You were to cut off any Japanese stragglers. You were to rescue any soldiers that were wounded. You were to supply them with food and intelligence. You were to make weapons. There's a great photo in the book of the good people of Taramara practising how to kill Japanese with sharpened sticks. That's right. And Swain actually says in the documents, an ironbark spike is as good as a bayonet. I'm going to look at this photo of this guy again because he looks like quite a piece of work, even for the time. Commissioner E.H.F. Swain, there he is, piping it up at the beginning of the book. It mentions that he was a bit of a prickly character and not always the easiest guy to work with, but someone who knew how to dot the I's. 
Yeah, he was absolutely meticulous. He'd been a forestry commissioner in Queensland, but had a stoush with them and then came down to New South Wales and was appointed forestry commissioner here. In the end, he got sacked from here in about 1948 because he did stand up to the politicians and he argued for forests. He is known in the forest history community as an absolute champion of forests. All the detail in Scorched Earth of locations and tracks and everything comes down to his personal knowledge. And funnily enough, Swain has never been recognised that he was the author of this policy. It's been said that you know, he had an ego the size of the Melbourne cricket ground. Yes. But in actual fact, he obviously wasn't bragging about this. And this is an incredible achievement. This would have just got put to one side or would this have been considered a dark thing that no one wanted no. to remember? What happened was the bureaucracy keeps on going, this file's um, now closed and we put it in a box and we put it away. And the reason why no one's found it before is because you'd have to know where to find it and you wouldn't think to look in forestry. I found it by luck. Scorched earth, like denying the enemy, it's well known in warfare. Even thinking of the Second World War, like the French were really good at hiding stuff. They hid a lot of their stuff. They were good at that. The Norwegians got away with their gold reserve to England. The Germans destroyed other people's property as they retreated. They tend to do that, except for the Nero decree from March 1945. And I've got to say, Hitler gave old Swain a run from his money because he basically summarised the entire scorched earth policy in one paragraph. I'll just quote that to you. Hitler just wrote, It's a mistake to think that transport and communication facilities which have not been destroyed or put out of action can be used by us again once the lost territory has been recovered. Enemy will leave us nothing. So he just wrote, All military transport and communication facilities, industrial establishments and supply depots, as well as anything else of value within the Reich, is to be destroyed within the foreseeable future. That's it. He he did it within one paragraph. Swain says something very close to that, telling people you have to destroy your goods because the enemy will destroy them when they retreat. You aren't getting back anyway. That's right. Mm. That is amazing similarity yep. there. Old soldiers never die. and There'll be no fading away either if their country's attacked. They're symbols of the true spirit of democracy. Given that every state in Australia was supposed to have a scorched earth policy, I think it would be just fantastic to find the Queensland and Victoria and South Australians, and then that would also sort out the debate about the Brisbane line as well. So that's not a done deal. I thought that the Brisbane line was considered a fact, one we didn't talk about, but was a fact. That's where we would not really defend anything north of Brisbane. Well, some readers have thought that this supports the theory of the Brisbane line. I don't know that it does. There are phrases in here that say something like the defended areas, and that's the Newcastle, Port Kembla. But when you look at the way they were treating the north coast and the south coast of New South Wales, it's this tactical withdrawal. If the Queensland policy was similar, then it means it won't support it. Maybe this just adds to the discussion. Nowhere in here does he mention the Brisbane line in anything that I've read. Set the scene a little bit about what Australia was like in 1942, how the population was distributed. You mentioned here that half the population of Australia was in New South Wales in 1942. Obviously, we were very urbanised, but there were still substantial rural populations and townships. We were very Anglo, though we did have immigrants from southern Europe that had come through from the 1900s, and then you had the European refugees that came after Hitler's rise to power in the 1930s, so a lot of Jewish refugees. The average Australian might not have seen a lot of Asian people full stop in the community? Obviously Chinese people that had been here from their descendants from the gold rushes, Mm. they would have been fairly minimal. 
as far as the gold medal champs of destroying their own property would be the Russians. Of course, the Chinese to deny everything to the Japanese. It continually cites the Chinese and Russian model. Would Swain, who wrote this, have known much about that? I don't know. He was a very erudite man. Would he have had access to stuff that the normal citizen wouldn't have? Would he have a top secret clearance? I saw nothing to indicate that. But he's known through his life as a writer, and if you're a writer, you're a reader. And he just seemed to have this incredible energy and intellect. Don't tell me how it ends, because I've only got up to page 180. I hope we win. On page 112, there's a great quote from the plan, the Scorched Earth plan. Swain writes, and it's very epic. I can almost hear his deep voice saying that. The citizen may be still a non-combatant because he hasn't got a rifle, but he is not neutral. Every citizen was required to participate as if they were part of the military. You were to destroy goods or whatever that the Japanese would find useful at your peril. He says that repeatedly. So if you were left with a tractor that you hadn't got rid of and you didn't have a stick of jelly that dropped down the sum, then you're expected to drive it off a cliff. You had to and you were not to leave until you'd done that. That was absolutely not to fall into their hands. There's a nice little bit of bureaucracy in here as well. On page 113, the question of compensation cannot be decided until after the completion of the war. Do note he doesn't say until we've won. Were you expected to keep receipts and perhaps take them to the Japanese once they took over? How did it work? Well, they had this scorched earth insurance and war damage. The War Damage Insurance Act. Was the War Damage Insurance Act ever used for people who did do a bit of scorched earth behaviour in Darwin or Queensland? My understanding is that Scorched Earth wasn't activated because they didn't invade. Who knows what happened in Townsville and Darwin and Mm. Wyndham and Broome when they were bombed, if they got covered. But you had to pay. If you didn't pay the policy, then you weren't covered. The War Damage Insurance Act is something that you would get as an insurance policy. Yeah, every citizen may and should insure his possessions against war damage and Scorched Earth operations under the War Damages Insurance Act. If you didn't take out the policy... I think you were stuck. Like I said, Boy Scouts, everyone had a job. The attitude to women, the women were expected to be nurses, except in Taramara where they were sharpening sticks. What was the role of women in the scorched earth policy? Men weren't expected to be in cars getting away from an active war zone, except if they were driving. Parts of this here specified that the women have to drive and the cars were to be packed to the gills with women and children and then supplies. Mm -hmm. And the men were mostly going to be doing the walking. And you were not expected to carry with you any luxury goods. A mink coat? A painting? Or makeup or perfume or... Funnily enough, the supplies they have to take was tea, sugar, chocolate, condensed milk, three cans of bully beef and a jar of bovril. And some rice. That was the surprise. (laughs) Enough for a week in the bush. That's right. There seems to be a rather big obsession in the Scorched Earth plan with tennis nets. They're obsessed with tennis nets and garden twine. What is so useful to the Japanese war machine, tennis nets and garden twine? And sand shoes, by the way. Page 133. Tennis shoes must be destroyed. You're not even allowed to chuck them away. You've got to destroy your tennis shoes because they're listed as a favourite of the Japanese. What's his obsession with sport? The tennis nets and twine were for camouflage. They could use it for camouflage. And apparently sand shoes were the favourite footwear of the Japanese. Well, this was Swain. That's what he had to say. Page 128 is a good one too. What to do in an air raid? She's quite a well-dressed woman. One of those things looks like she's standing up. She's turning her kitchen utensils upside down. Now, this is something we could still use today. If you're expecting a loud party or you're having people around that are a bit clumsy, turn your kitchen utensils upside down. Well, hang on, what's the idea of this? It's something to do with glass splinters for powdered glass from shattered windows. 
the powdered glass from shattered windows won't get inside the cups and things. So you can still make tea without any dust or bits of glass getting into your cup? Powdered glass is one of the classic murder techniques, isn't it? That's true. The portable radio, when you think of a portable radio, you think of a transistor, which of course wasn't invented at that point. The portable radio was the size of a microwave. And this is the Australian Woman's Weekly, and that's in December 27, 1941, just after the Japanese had really got involved in the war. The Woman's Weekly is excellent in terms of all the advice that they've provided to people across the time. And again, that's a really great insight into the real mood of the time and the fears. Already they're very handy with Molotov cocktails and mortars. They're carrying on. Did the plan come together in time? The plan was ready and signed off on in November 1942. Would that have been in time? Because it had to be implemented. It was really signed off earlier than that. The versions of it that date to April are pretty much the same. There was a bit of argy-bargy between Swain and the military representative because the military had to give the official stamp on it and he was complaining that they were really slow to process the stuff. They might have had other stuff on their mind too. Yeah. And I don't think the military were thrilled. The military representative, I think his name was McColl, felt that the civilians were going to take over army function and Swain kept stressing no, action would only be taken on the order of the military. But it was pretty ready. Then they were going into the areas with the scorched earth support squads and oh, I don't know how far you've got into this. Page 182. Yeah. There's instructions there. For, so who was going to destroy the bridges? Was it going to be the local council or the Department of Public Works? All that refining. Because in here it names every bridge, every jetty, every wharf from all the little hamlets, all the way from the Queensland border down to the Victorian border. Against each one is allocated whose job it was to dispose of it as invasion occurred. As someone from 2017 reading this, what was your first reaction to it? I sort of was gobsmacked. I thought, this is incredible. I couldn't get the grin off my face because some of it does read quite comically, even though it's very serious stuff. Some of the things that they were expecting to do under the stresses and miscommunication of the fog of war would be almost impossible to implement. Well, yes, and then there's also the language and the reference to the Japanese. They won't forget the white Australia policy, things like like that. When I was reading the the policy, I was actually really, really surprised that we were that well organised. That really stunned me, the detail and the language of it. It's all in the imperative. The citizen will do this. You will destroy this. You will march to here. All the language of it is so direct. And then the the level of detail, how to blow up a bridge, how to build a tank trap and then fill it up with hardwood and set it on fire. The organisation of the plan is incredibly detailed and I just thought pulling this off under wartime conditions, I could just see it going terribly wrong. Setting fire to the bush at Karingai Chase, look out. I guess it could have gone wrong, but in terms of the detail and the planning, the intent was that it it didn't go wrong and also it was a way of mobilising the entire population. So instead of in France, where the whole population was virtually having to live under German rule, this meant that it was total war, total citizen collaboration. So it was the best and most active defence that anyone could give. I think it was optimistic, and it was, certainly they didn't think of it as a defensive policy. They were thinking of it as offensive. We have the soldiers with the guns, and we have the rest of the population who are supporting them and using improvised resources to stop them. And after all, it's a big country. The Japanese, if they were denied food, and particularly water... 
they were very careful to make sure they never got a hold of water, they would have been in trouble. I think that they probably would have bitten off more than they could chew. What's your opinion as a historian on whether they intended to invade or not? Do you think that was a bit of a fluid decision that maybe hadn't actually been made by the time this plan was drawn up? I think it was fluid. They had the precaution of printing invasion currency. They did do that. There's one theory that they were going to come down from Darwin down to Adelaide on bicycle. I I don't know how that could have possibly worked. They hadn't thought that one through. So I really think it would have depended on how successful they were. And they were so quick and able to use the resources in Malaya and Thailand, the Philippines. But you can't blame anyone for thinking it was going to happen because of the speed of the advance everywhere else. It just made sense to think that we were next. We weren't being silly or alarmist. We would have been fools not to have had some policy. The fact that it didn't need to to be implemented is really fortunate because it would have been absolutely devastating, pulling apart factories and machine were going to be pulled apart. Some of it was just going to be hidden. The book is Scorched Earth, Sue Rosen on Alan and Unwin. And you've got some extra material on your website that people might find interesting as well. Where can people find you online? Just Google Sue Rosen Associates. It'll come up there and I've set up a web page for the Scorched Earth as part of the site. There's a report done by the Scorched Earth Committee back to the Premier. I've put that in there. I've put a copy of the security regulations that legalised the Scorched Earth policy to make it happen that gave it the force of law and other documents about Swain's commissioning for what it was to do. Check out the photo of him right in the front of the book there with the pipe. Is there one fact that you found from this book that you'd like to share with us to finish it? You thought, wow, that's an interesting one. And there's so many of them. Mm. The problem with this is that it's, it is so dense with detail and the most amazing statements. We've got scorched earth is a disciplined, selective, aggressive operation depending upon thorough preparation beforehand against the enemy at the final military moment, utterly denying our resources to the enemy. It wasn't defeatist. Except if you're really into tennis you're in a hard time because they're going to hide your nets and slash your tennis shoes. That's right. And I had no idea that tennis was such a subversive activity. Dr. Sue Rosen, thank you very much. Thank you. Just ordinary peace-loving citizens are being transformed into the stuff of which Anzacs are made. On maynard.com.au Bryson and Hume. Everything digital.